Lucky Land slots, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Mouth Off, a podcast for and about marginalized communities. Now... I use the word marginalized here in its broadest sense. Episodes cover a wide range of topics from gender and sexuality to mental health issues and substance abuse. On today's episode, I'll be talking to multi-published author Michaela Cox. Michaela writes on a myriad of topics. Her books include Take a Sip, Take a Breath and Go, A Journey Through Motherhood, which was published in 2019. Following this book, she has released a companion book entitled Take a Sip, Take a Breath and Go, a companion book for exploring and discovering your own journey through motherhood. In 2011, Michaela also published Heartfelt Meditations, a collection of poetry inspired by cherished scriptures. She draws inspiration for her heartfelt meditations from her journey as a mother, her journey of faith, and the American journey of We the People. Since the publication of her first book, she has been learning, growing, and journeying through her own motherhood as a mother of her two children. She would like to share her story with you today. I'll be interspersing this with my own original compositions that I think are appropriate for the topics being discussed. So, yeah, thank you for, for agreeing to come on today, Michaela. Appreciate the opportunity. Yes, it's, it's great, and thanks for reaching out. So, I guess if you could tell our listeners and myself a bit about yourself, what it is you do in a nutshell, and, and I guess what, what makes you tick. Um, <laughs> that's a lot. Um, no, seriously. <laughs> I'm Michaela Cox. I'm an author and speaker. I've published eight books thus far. I have a lot more in me. Um, I write because I want to share my message and my story. Um, what I've been talking about a lot lately is what I call my journey of 38 triple D, a lifelong journey from much tribulation to thriving in all things, a lifelong disability of legal blindness, uh, divorce at 26, and then death of beloved husband at 38 and threw me into solo parenting four years ago. So I write to share my message and my experiences. Knock, knock, I've been around the block and I'm not wasting time today. Tick tock, I'm hiding all the clocks and now it's time I had my say. I know you're looking for your flow and now you're getting in my way. Oh no, I said we'd take it slow, but now fast forward to both my hands uncovering. You Not a race against time 
Well, you've kind of you've kind of touched upon what was going to be my next question, but I guess uh, what you didn't answer then is the when. So you've said a little bit about how you got into writing, but when did that first start? When did you sort of sit down and think, you know, I'm going to I'm going to try and write a book. I'm going to try and put this down and send my message out. It was always around. I always remember writing. I was a little bit of an odd kid. I somehow got it in my head in second grade and I guess grammar school for you guys or elementary over here um, to write an editorial about something I was upset about. And I submitted it to my local newspaper where we were living at the time. Yeah, like I said, weird kid. And then I wrote my first poem when I was in fourth grade. Obviously, I what I write today is very different from what I wrote as a kid, but I've always written. It's who I am. It's what I do. When I'm not writing, I'm thinking about it. And I'm, you know, it's just, I feel like it's what I was given to do. Yeah. So you've, you've just said you've published, you've had eight books published. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing from what you've shared already that there's a lot of personal content in there. Has it always been, you know, driven by personal experiences or have you ever written fiction just because you want to get out of your own head and sort of delve into another character I'm not my mind I think fiction is amazing and I always have great admiration for those writers what they do the worlds they create the the characters they create the way they spin their their spool of gold thread to create these amazing escape realities for all of us to get hit the you know get out of our heads but my mind honestly just doesn't work that way I'm not that that's I'm not a natural in that way I have to I do mainly nonfiction. there's one idea I might do eventually that would be fiction but that's going to be a really hard sell and press for me because my mind just isn't naturally geared in that way yeah
little bit about Forget Me Not as an organisation. So I guess the Mouth Off podcast, so we're an inclusive arts organisation that works largely with marginalised communities. So that could be, I know that's sort of a, it's a, it's a little bit of an umbrella term, but it can, in, you know, encompass so much. But we've worked with um, LGBTQ plus communities, uh, disabled community, working class communities, uh, black, Asian, minority, ethnic, women. We've done gender specific projects. We've done a, a lot of projects with older people, maybe suffering with memory issues and work around dementia and reminiscence theatre. And well, a lot more, really. And I guess the question I usually ask is, you know, when someone comes on the podcast is, do you consider yourself marginalised, first and foremost? I've had lots of people on that kind of go, well, I am sort of in that box that you've just said, but I don't consider myself marginalised. So I guess that would be a first place to start is, do you consider yourself marginalised? How disabilities are handled internationally in the various different countries. And I don't know how Wales as a from a social policy or economic policy or, you know, other policies that go with it, how they deal with that population over there. But I know from a stateside uh, standpoint, um, the disabled population does not have the easiest um, <laughs> mm. advantages or opportunities. So yeah, I would say from that aspect, the idea of being a part of a demographic, yeah, it's very much mar marginalized in this country. Now I've, tried to do really well for myself and you know not let it stand in my way but I would technically have to say if you want to solely just look at the disability on paper by itself then yes it would have to be marginalized because that community is very much more marginalized stateside yeah and what about and just thinking from a gender point of view uh, I don't know what the the ratio I haven't done the the sums um as of late but um you know in terms of female authors published female authors versus male I mean do you feel that you're you're marginalized in that sense you're in a male dominated profession or, or does gender not really come into it for you I don't know if it really I don't know the answer to that question honestly because I don't traditionally publish and so I don't know the stats as far mm. as what they may be currently I self-publish so it's yeah. very much what I want to do I do know that when you walk into a bookstore you see I, you would think scrolling the the shelves of the books that you see a great number of, of male authors and female authors as well. So I'm, I'm not saying that women haven't had struggles in that industry, just like they've had struggles in most industries in this world. But I think in today's world, it's more about what the publishing world's looking for. And if they have can find a good story, they're going to do it regardless. Maybe back in the day it was that way. And maybe it still is. I don't know. But um, I'm in the self-publishing industry. Yeah. I had an author on a disabled children's author uh, I think it was the last episode actually uh, called Gavin Clifton who um, initially was was self-published and yeah he was just talking about I guess his experience is more from from the point of view being a, a disabled uh, he's a songwriter also a disabled songwriter and an author in the industry um, you, you mentioned a term earlier a legal legal blindness which isn't really a, a, a term that we use in the UK so I've done a little bit of research so I am just reading a, a definition from um, online but so used in the the United States by the government uh, and correct me if I'm if I'm using an incorrect source here but um, to determine eligibility for vocational training rehabilitation schooling 
disability benefits, low vision devices and tax exemption programs. So the, the, the site I was looking at was sort of specifying that it's not a functional low vision definition and it doesn't tell us much about, you know, how much a person can or cannot see. I, I guess, what what is your own personal journey with uh, legal blindness? If I'm not mistaken, stateside, and I don't know if this is a definition that's universal to everywhere in the world or if it is strictly stateside, um, but I do know in the U.S., um, I do believe the golden standard in vision is 2020, and that's probably across the board. That's perfect vision. So what they're saying is the further you get away from that 2020 standard, if you're getting closer to like either 2200 or 2400 uncorrected, that means not with glasses or anything, without correction, with visual aids or glasses or contacts or whatever, your visual acuity, when you go to the eye doctor and they measure what you're like, if you're seeing at 2050 or 2080 or whatever, if you're measuring at either 2200 or 2400 uncorrected, you are considered to be blind within the confines of the law stateside. Hence, the blindness within the eyes of the law, legal blindness. Right, right I see. For I me, guess. that looks like in real life is um, I don't drive. It takes me longer to do things. I mean, I've worked really hard to overcome it and, and do what I've got to do. I mean, I do have a high school diploma and a college degree and, you know, a master's and I raised two kids by myself and, yeah. you know, I'm an author and, you know, so I have a pretty good life. There aren't days that it's not hard, but I've worked really hard. I've had it my whole life. I was born this way. So there's never been a day. There's never been a moment where I haven't taken a breath where I wasn't visually impaired or legally blind or blind or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's all I've ever known. It's not like, and I'm not knocking anyone's experience, but I'm just comparing in a sense of you had your full ability and your visual acuity. And then all of a sudden it was gone or changed. No, it's mm-hmm. always, way. I've never known what it's like to have normal vision so it's all I've ever known um I always had accommodations I don't know what y'all do over there they're called used to be called IEP individual education plans or what the schools had to do for me I had extended time I had additional time to take tests or assignments I always had to sit at the front of the class depending on what year we're talking about I would have different types of technology uh, aids to help me I've done most of my education on audiobooks since fifth grade. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know what y'all do for entrance into university over there, stateside. You may have heard of some places, depending on what university you're applying to, you're, you have to take a, a test that's called the ACT or the SAT. Mm-hmm. Um, most for people in the South, we take the ACT unless you're trying to get into a different school and you take the SAT. But the SAT, um, ACT, excuse me, takes four hours. I was lauded up to 12 hours to take that test. Okay. And it took time. So I would take a week out of school and I would do a section a day where I listened to it on audio tape for three to four hours. And I would write down the answers and my guidance counselor would transfer them to the Scantron with those little bubbles or whatever. Yes. <laughs> they don't work. I'm like, no, I'm, don't eat. No, 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 not doing it. <laughs> it doesn't work. So I had, you know, those kind of accommodations in college. I had readers and I had scribes that would go with me to class and, you know, all the things I don't drive Um, on my phone. I'm sure y'all have Apple products are all over the world. I have an iPhone right now that, Mm -hmm. uh, and the Apple world is really the best for like um, accessibility of, you know, large font and colors and, you know, 
magnifying things. If I was still on Androids, I would prefer to use LG because that's just what works best for me for accessibility. Right. I use MacBook so I can do diction if I have to, or I can enlarge things, you know. Yeah. And so I guess I was going to ask about what your creative process is like when you're writing and coming up with ideas. Do you ever use like sort of, I don't know, speech to speech to text um, technology? Heard about that. And I think it would be very advantageous for me from a visual standpoint. Mm -hmm. But personally, I do better in my thinking when I'm actually like sitting typing it out because I like something will come to me while I'm like, no, no, I want to phrase it this way. You know what I'm saying? And Mm -hmm. so I just, the way my mind works and processes uh, and me actually typing it out helps me work through the material better. So I choose to do it that way. Although I could do what you speak of and it sounds like it would be phenomenal, but I just, I don't know. It works Mm -hmm. better for the writer to actually type it out. Yeah. And I've, when I've dabbled with it, just if I've, because I'm a a songwriter and, and uh, write lyrics and poetry as well. And, uh, often will be struck with an idea while I'm in the car. And of course, you know, (laughs) your hands are on the wheel. It'd be dangerous to, you know, to to take them off. But I I have dabbled with using um, the uh, speech to text things just built in with with your, your, you know, Android smartphone. And it wasn't very good. It wasn't very accurate. I'm sure there are apps out there that you pay the money for. You're going to get more of the accuracy. But yeah, (laughs) I tend to just... um, record you know dictate and just do the the recorder on my phone if I get ideas um nowadays but yeah so what what do you think is the most common misconception that people make about you when they first meet you or if they've researched you you know for an interview or something like something like we're doing now or or are there common misconceptions uh, I think there are, not necessarily me specifically, but just when you hear the word disability, people have a lot of preconceived notions of, oh, well, this means that, well, no, not really. You're assuming that because mm-hmm. you don't research it or don't have to deal with it or don't know what it's like. Not you specifically. I mean, people in mm-hmm. general. Mm-hmm. And uh, and a good example of that is at least stateside is um, the disabled people, regardless of the disability, mine just happens to be vision or visual related Um it's very hard to find employment opportunities that are worth a dang. Mm-hmm. It's like, I don't know what y'all do for legislation um, or how y'all pass it. I know a little bit about international government, but I'm much more well-versed in our own uh, America because mm-hmm. that's what my master's is in. But there was a major piece of legislation done in 1990 in this country. It was really the first of its kind called the ADA American Disabilities Act. And it was phenomenal for what it was at the time. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of holes in it and we need to go back and, I, I think revamp it and, and improve things but that was really the first time we had anything on our law books about what could be done or needed to be done for the disability population in this country and making their lives a little bit easier um it was a good first ditch effort but I think it needs to go back and have more done to it but because the what can happen now in America business is business as it should be and that's fine but they're going to do what they have to do to protect their bottom line, which is fine. So as they should, they're in business. That's what they're there for. But they're not going to do anything that is counter to their endeavors of achieving most profit in in business. So if you have, let's say, a handful of applicants that are perfectly normal per se, and then you have two disabled people, the odds are you hiring the two disabled people is probably not because you're smart enough to realize you're going to have to come up with either accommodations or you're going to have to 
you know, if you're budgeted in the week, 120 hours for this project or whatever, and it takes them 10 times longer to do it, it's not efficient. So why would you hire someone that mm-hmm. when you hire two other people to do, don't, it, it, it just doesn't work in practicality, which mm-hmm. makes sense from a business standpoint, but then it really sucks for the reality of the disabled people. And if normal people aren't getting jobs, then the disabled definitely aren't getting jobs. Mm-hmm. The problem with that is no mm-hmm. employer is going to tell you I'm not hiring you because you're disabled because they do that. They know they're going to get sued. So you can't prove it. Mm-hmm. So it kind of is like that proverbial elephant in the room that everyone knows about, but yeah. it's an interesting situation. So. They laugh at my identity, but it's only the facade they see. Tears I've quite have censored me. I'm just expressionless, the self distributor of shame. But I'm not playing games, this is just me, and I'm expressionless as they face my window. Equality Act, Single Equality Act, which was updated again and tweaked in 2012. And that kind of, yeah, I mean, that really was a notable positive change. And um, I work, I've got background in education, so I'm a qualified teacher. And uh, and then I've given sort of training and, um, you know, in-house training to, to schools and colleges and um, nurseries or what, what you would call a kindergarten <laughs> over there on the Equality Act and just telling organisations about their sort of uh, their duties, their obligations and their strategy obligations in terms of, you know, not just disability rights, but, you know, including the the protected characteristics. So a lot more is being done, particularly on an education point of view, um, to cover and promote the protected characteristics. And I know a lot of organisations in the UK will now practice positive discrimination when um, interviewing people for jobs so for example if you know on paper someone is um, as qualified as the next person but they happen to have a disability and they both do a really good interview then they will give it to the person with a disability so they are allowed to practice positive discrimination not all of them do and it's not it's not a you know statutory kind of obligation but a lot more businesses are practicing that now which is great to see yeah, um, 
Yeah, I know you you mentioned Swansea earlier. My um my brother used to work at Swansea University, and he's mentioned that he's interviewed for jobs. You know, interviewed people for jobs, and they practice that regularly there. The positive discrimination and giving it to marginalized someone from a marginalized background with a protected characteristic. So, kind of going in the right direction. But as you say, yes, there <laughs> there is still a lot more that could and should be done. If we could go back to a- so the introduction you gave, you mentioned the inspiration behind sharing your journey and what featured in a lot of your books. And I'd like to just talk about grief for a moment, if that's okay, and specifically dealing with the loss of your husband. So you were 38. How long ago was it that, that he died? Four years ago. Um, we just came up on four years in April. So it's been yeah. almost four years and four months in August. So almost four and a half in October. I mean, and my children were six and three at the time. So yeah, gosh, that's uh, that's. I imagine, you know, for me, grief is a is a topic that I'm keen to talk about, particularly on the podcast, a lot. You know, as many people, I'm sure it would affect and resonate on a on a personal level, particularly maybe more so during a global pandemic. And yeah, I mean, I. My father-in-law succumbed to dementia right at the start of the of the pandemic, and just a few months later, a, a close friend and, and colleague, work colleague, um, died from COVID, aged just twenty-eight. And then three weeks after that, my my own father uh, died. He, he had prostate cancer and kidney failure. Sorry and yeah, and and ultimately decided to stop all treatment. He stopped his dialysis. I guess he wanted to, I don't know, regain some control and right. know when and where and how he was going to die. Which um, on his terms, probably. Yeah, on his terms, which I respect. I still have issues ex- accepting sometimes. Time keeps. Say, cause life was 
unprecedented times which is a term that's getting used a lot lately that that many people like me you know your personal story would speak to them maybe in a in a in, in an even deeper way I guess I'm wondering what advice or just thoughts you'd like to share about this and particularly someone that might be dealing with grief not necessarily because of coronavirus but it may have happened over the last 18 months and as a result they haven't been able to be there at the end or hug their loved ones or grieve in that in that sort of normal or expected way and I guess yeah I I mean I don't know the circumstances surrounding your your husband's death and if it was expected or a complete shock but it was um I was expecting him to come home and then he had an unforeseen um medical issue that just happened and went wrong so um, it was a normal day and he was supposed to come home and then he didn't. So it was in a blink of an eye. Life yeah. is funny that way. Um, change on a dime. Um, what I've been talking about a lot lately is for me personally, I'm a woman of faith, um, evangelical Christian. So that's a big part for me. But for other people um, outside of that, if that's not what you do and that's fine, not you necessarily, but just in general terms. Uh, the four things that help me is... Um, life is a choice. We may not be given our circumstances, but we can choose what we do with them. We can let our life circumstances define us, or we can strive to define them for ourselves. And that's just as true as the disability. It was leaving my first marriage as it is when losing my husband. Now, granted, out of the three Ds, the death of my husband has been by far the hardest, but it's still a choice, you know. Um, We're not always asked what we want in life but we're given what we're given and you get to decide what you do with it um the other thing for me and this is probably the harder part because sometimes it's hard to not be run by your emotions or your feelings or your thoughts you know our mental life you know Mm -hmm. but it's still mindset at the end of the day you know what you want to do with it and how you want to see your life do you want to be in the the camp of being a pessimist or you know optimist do you want to see the world as half full half empty you know, do you, can you find, even though no matter how hard it might be or, you know, small it may be, can you find the, the silver linings or the ray of sunshine amidst the clouds? Do you want to try and find the joy even in the hard times? Do you want to try and find, even if it's just, well, at least I still have a roof over my head, you know, things of gratitude or, you know, my kids aren't sick, you know, or whatever mm-hmm. it is, all the blank. And then choose to let your mindset help you get from whatever you're going through to whatever you've chosen to do in life, you know, and staying on track and staying focused and staying motivated and, you know, determined and having tenacity and being persistent and persevering and all that stuff. Um, I think 
this has become a popular kind of trendy subject, especially because of the pandemic, although it's always relevant. I just think it's been kind of brought to people's minds more than maybe not before the pandemic as far as mental health and self-care and attending to yourself because people were dealing with so many issues that stem from the pandemic and being isolated and depression and anxiety and all that stuff, you know, and stress and worry and then how is this impacting our family? How is this impacting my employment, you know, and all that stuff that's stemmed as a byproduct of the world shutting down basically. Um, So I think that has brought, even though it was always kind of there as an issue, I think it's became much more in view of everybody of what to do with mental illness and the importance of self-care. Yeah. Having, wellness, uh, mentally speaking. Uh, I think self-care is extremely important, especially in the grief process. To me, I was not always great at self-care, but I've learned in the last four years that self-care and grief can really make the difference between drowning and at least keeping your head above water mm-hmm. and treading water till you can get to the shore. Yeah. Um, and then getting resources. Um, I know that's hard for people to ask for help. People feel vulnerable or weak, but it's really a sign of strength when you recognize when you need help and you're willing to do it. I kind of had to get over that one a long time ago as a kid, because when you have a disability, you kind of always need help and need resources. So you kind of get used to asking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I personally got over that one a long time ago and got over mm-hmm. it myself. I know that's a hard one for people. So I, I think those are four key things that really relate to each other, which seem like very different things. Um, and in order to keep a healthy mindset, you have to do self-care, you know, to stay focused and balanced and centered so that you can manage your mindset so that you can stay on track with your choices. And sometimes in doing that, you need resources, whether it be you need financial help or you need support from your loved ones or your family or your tribe of friends, or maybe you need counseling. Maybe you need a support group. Maybe you need to journal, whatever that is. I don't care. Mm-hmm. Or maybe with a disability, you need assistance with your technological stuff so you can accomplish your goal, whatever that is. It still amounts to gaining resources that helps you to get unstuck or stay on track with those choices that you made to say, this is what I want in my life. And the mindset helps you stay with the ability of being determined to do it and staying positive about it. And that self-care allows you to maintain that mindset. So they're all connected in my opinion. Yesterday, 
at the start of of, um, of your answer there about having faith and always having faith and I'd just like to talk about your collection of poems um, Heartfelt Meditations which was inspired by cherished scriptures so um, do you think that that you know that that book in particular um, the book of poetry can it speak to people from you know different backgrounds or different faiths or maybe someone that that feels that they are lacking in faith and 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 any kind of belief in sort of a religion or a sort of a higher being is it is there still a message to be gained from it. um i took that was done 10 years ago and i really started writing that book like eighth or ninth grade so it was kind of something that was picked at for oh gosh eighth grade for me was all of 92 to 93 and I wrote my last poem for that one in 04 so it was really over the course of like 10 or 11 years because I was in school for most of that time period and except for the last few no I was in school from 93 to 2001 and I was married to my first husband so when I'm in school I don't have a lot of time for everything else because it takes me so long to do school so that's why I had to pick at it for basically a decade because mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I was you know being high school student and then university but I just took favorite scriptures that I thought were important that meant something to me or my friends. And I wanted to expound upon it so that people could learn what they were. Mm-hmm. So I, I hope that's the case, but really what I think that might prove to be feel the need of what you just proposed is really the book that I wrote and put out in June of 2020. It was called spirituality and scripture and our culture today about starting a dialogue about religion and spirituality and our beliefs as a culture. So that probably would actually do that better than, the poetry yeah so you've mentioned there about your your first husband so you were divorced when you were just 26 is that right correct yes and I mean I imagine I can only imagine that going through divorce at any time of life is difficult you know and life changing but you know at such a young age as well what was the biggest lesson learned in that for you and and what would you hope someone maybe listening to this and going through that themselves would take from your sort of your lesson learned there? 
Um, my biggest lesson learned there was, first of all, um, not life isn't always black and white. There's a lot of gray. And so I had to get comfortable with the gray mm-hmm. and kind of figuring out for myself. Um, I learned love is not always a bed of roses. It was a difficult marriage. And I didn't even believe in divorce. I, you know, I, I wasn't raised in divorce. My parents will be fixing to be married for like 47 years in November. And until mm-hmm. my generation of the four granddaughters on that side of the family, no one was divorced. I mean, and two of my cousins are now, <laughs> including myself in that conversation, in that statement. So it's just not something we did in our family being faith-based and believing in the sanctity of marriage or whatever. But it was a circumstance that was no longer in, um, in had inhabitable, like it, it couldn't work anymore. And so I chose to walk away because I learned that I can't go down drowning trying to save someone else. Mm-hmm. So I had to, I did everything I could. We worked and tried to save it. And it just, at the end of the day, was not salvageable. And so I decided that's not what I wanted for my life. And so I made the hard decision to walk away from it and try and re-envision myself and, you know, recreate myself and figure out what I wanted. So, yeah. through my head but the fragments that I can't connect what part of no don't you understand when you're losing all control again I try to break this transparent thread but it's fragmented and it's tinged with dread what do you see in your mind's eye? Is it worth living a perpetual lie? Time to wake up, stand tall Fed up with dealing with your stone wall You fed me like you fed the truth These walls can talk and I've got the truth It's my mistake, all the things left unsaid Now the fragments that I can't connect Think you should leave cause you don't understand Why I am losing self-control again It's time to wake up and stand tall Fed up with dealing with your stone wall
Yeah, I mean, what what advice would you give to someone else at that point? Maybe just starting that process of feeling like I've got to stay in this because I can't imagine life on my own and where I might go. Well, it's a choice. You know, it's a hard choice, but you have to decide, is it really worth it to you? And, you know, is this what you want for the rest of your Japan where you're at in your journey 20, 30, 40 years? And do you want to look back and said that, was it worth staying and you were miserable for your whole life or, you know, especially if you're in danger, then obviously get out. But I mean, yeah. yeah. And then you have to decide that because it's not worth it if you're in danger, you know, it, mine wasn't a situation like that, but I would say to any person that who's in physical danger or mental danger, it's not worth it. It's mm-hmm. not, mm-hmm. but uh, I, we were just at a point with no matter what we, what was tried, it wasn't working and I wasn't willing to stay around for the third and fourth and fifth act. And mm. I just was done. I'd done what I thought I could and it wasn't working. And so I decided that this wasn't something that needed to continue. Yeah. And, and was it, was it, left. sorry. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, was it almost like instantaneously that uh, a weight was lifted off your shoulders? When I made the final decision, yes, but it was a long process. It's never one thing and it doesn't happen in a blink of a, the, the final decision may happen in a blink of the eye, but the process that gets mm. you to that point not happen in the blink of an eye um I would say once I did to finally decided to divorce him um and once we were divorced I relied on my friends a lot during that time period mm-hmm. and I chose to take a year to focus on myself and kind of just get to know myself again outside of that context and see what I wanted in life and of course like I said I'm faith-based so I relied you know being in the word and studying and being in my walk with Christ and being in the church and you know just doing things that brought me joy you know and mm-hmm. kind of back to being me yeah I was in counseling and stuff like that so Mm -hmm. yeah so in your book um we the people Uh um you talk there about what it means to be an American and and looking at that sentence we the people what that means and from from what I've gathered from doing research on you you are a a proud American woman um I guess I was just wondering how difficult it is to maintain a sense of pride I mean you could say this anywhere in the world not not specific to America but just so happened that this was the point that I I was thinking of um you know in the aftermath of something like George Floyd or you know with all the Black Lives Matter stuff going on or even continuing gun control issues and things that come up like that how is is it difficult to maintain that sense of what makes that belonging for you and, and that pride in your homeland well, I mean, the America and no other, and a country, whether it be America or anywhere in the world, is not a perfect because mm. what you forget is it goes back to the individual. It starts with one person. That one person makes up a family, that makes up a, a block, that makes up a city, that makes up a state, that makes up a county or a parish or whatever, that makes up a nation. So mm. we're still made up of individuals. So a country can never be perfect because you're made up by a large, large group of imperfect individuals. It's not mm. going to happen. And so while we do get some things wrong, obviously, like things you mentioned, and, but we get a lot right. Mm-hmm. And these that a lot of people want to forget is, and it irritates me from a standpoint of you have a set of within the chorus of we, the people, the voice of we, the people, you have different groups and factions and parties or whatever you want to call it. And, you know, dynamics. And sometimes the loudest person doesn't make them the right person or what everyone believes. They just happen to have the loudest megaphone. Yeah. So just 
because they're heard over everybody else does not mean they're speaking for everybody else. And mm-hmm. I think that gets lost because that's the only voice you hear because they just happen to have the biggest and the loudest, but that does not make either a make them correct or a assume that that means what everyone else is saying. That's not the case. That doesn't always match up. So there's something to be said for the silent majority or minority that's not being heard because they can't be heard over the noise of the loudest megaphone or megaphone in the crowd. And yeah. I think that's happening a lot in this country. Americans, especially in certain areas of the country are very good people. It's just, you have these major events that are out shouting everything else. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's funnily enough, I, I I had the same conversation with someone related to being British. Well, English, I'm not English, I'm Welsh, but you know, England is a part of the United Kingdom. And I don't know if you've heard in the, the recent news regarding the football or soccer, as you call it, mm-hmm. um, final England versus Italy. And there was, you know, horrific racist abuse and English fans attacking other English fans of different ethnicities because one of the players that missed the penalty that was the decider of the game um, was a black man. And some of the scenes that people were posting about on social media and horrific violence going on in the crowds just kind of made me go... Oh my gosh, you know, number one is just a game. And number That's two... what I was going to say. I'm, I was going to say, this is going to get me in trouble. <laughs> game. No, this is so important for people. And don't get me wrong, I love women's basketball, March Madness, stateside. I mean, that's all I watch for 10 days. And my kids yeah. know, no, this is, you can have the remote when it's over. Y'all get it the rest of the year. This is mama's time. But yes. I would never, ever, over a freaking mm. stupid game, do anything, get over yourself, people. Yeah. And there's a lot more real world severe problems that we need to be worried ourselves about then i mean we are in a pandemic for crying out loud never mind the normal stuff so i mean yeah. just get it over yourself and it's yeah. sad that that happens no i hadn't heard that but i i see what you're saying and that is very tragic and i hate that it happened because it shouldn't happen anyway but especially over something as trivial sporting events regardless mm-hmm. of what sporting event is i mean don't get me wrong i can be competitive and like my sports but good gosh no yeah, I think you're right. You know, it is a shame when things like that overshadow like the bigger picture or, or the good that, you know, because there is still a lot of good in the world and there is still a lot to be said for, as you say, being proud of a nation that has done good. But um, yeah, it just, uh, yeah, that came up as I'd already put this question down, then that popped up on my social media and it, <laughs> it suddenly um, occurred to me that that was a very similar instance.
in that book that you referenced, I mean, I do have my own political opinions. Mm. I do have my own political views and where I, I stand on things, but that book was not really supposed to be about now, a few of my opinions do come through because I have a right to voice my opinion as well as we, the, a member of We the People. So it does come out a little bit, but the purpose of that book, and this is what I believe as an American, we have to be informed and educated to understand what we are so we can know what to do with it. So mm -hmm. my goal and what I write, a lot of my political things that will be coming out later on, and that one in particular, is just to inform and educate and let it be known this is what it's supposed to be, you know mm -hmm. what you do with that as your business as the reader but at least you know the information and then you can go and do because if we're not informed and we're not educated we can't even have a dialogue yeah no I'd, I'd, I'd like to read the book myself and I, I did notice it was um it was rated very highly on goodreads and in fact what one of the um one of the men that left a, a review rather than just rating it had said it was it was nice that your own political opinions didn't really come through maybe slightly in a few places but it was just you know it was um impartial I suppose in in that respect which is which is great which I is tried great. to be impartial as possible not because I don't have my but it was more about educating than it was yeah. anything now I did have a section of saying like my voice is we the people because I am a member of we the people so there go I have a right to express my voice but even mm. in that it was more of just presenting issues that I I thought were you know important or relevant at this time but I tried to make it be about informing and educating people on what we're yeah. supposed to be Americans and uh, patriots and the country and our system of government and whatnot so out of out of your the eight books that you've written so far is there one that you you know you look back on now and you still think you know that you, that, that you are proud maybe most proud of that book out of all of them I think I have three. I mean, they're all important because obviously I wrote them. I wouldn't write it. Yeah. Just for it. But I mean, that's a lot of work to do just for the heck of it. <laughs> but um, the three that I probably, I think are important right now. No, four. I, because I am so passionate about my country, I think it's important that people are informed about it. So that would be important. Obviously my newest one, because it, it tells people my message and my story and what I want to share with the world. And that was the first one I've really written on my own life. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously when you write, your experiences are going to come out. But I mean, very center focused on just my kind of memoir type thing. And that lays the foundation for the other books in that series to come. And then the one on my faith, because I believe very strongly in faith and what it can do and getting a conversation on that one. I referenced that one earlier about the spirituality scripture yeah. culture today. And then I did one last summer for my children. It's not a children's book. But I did write it to my children because I want them as they're growing up to know. It was an idea I had that came to me when I was in grad school in 2011 and 2012. And I never got to it until after. But um, with the passing of their father, I want them to be able to go back and have one place. Like, what did mom and dad want us to know about life going into life? I want them to be able to have. I mean, as parents, I don't know if you have children or not. Um, we're always telling our kids, this is important. This is important. Remember this. Remember this. Well, what really is important? So, because <laughs> we always say everything's important. Like, really? It's all important? You know, well, actually it is. But, you know, how do they know? So I wanted them to be able to say in one place, this is what mom and dad want us to remember. And unfortunately, my children won't be able to say, hey, I wonder what dad, mm -hmm. I want to get dad's wisdom on this. So I wanted them to have a spot that, you know, if John was here, these are the lessons that he and I would jointly tell them together. And so that series is going to be about giving them words of wisdom and truth um for their journey ahead in different aspects of life so those are probably the ones that i thus far think are what i value you know yeah 
And what do you think your your biggest challenge is as a writer? And or, or has maybe not right now, but has been in the past. And I guess what have you done, or how did you overcome it? I'm at the mercy of my eyesight. When my eyes says "screw it, lady, you're done for the day. You're done for the day." <laughs> mm-hmm. I get tired, you know, with being visually impaired and whatnot. But um, so then I just I work for a couple hours and I take a break. And if I'm able to go back to it for later on in the day, then I do. If not, then I pick it up the next day. So unfortunately, I'm kind of at the mercy of what my eyes will let me do. But other than that, I just just I don't know, just getting it done, you know, juggling yeah. everything. That's true of anything of anybody in any aspect of life. You know, we should all be acrobats and keeping all the balls up in the air, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So do you tend to work on one project at a time or do you ever have sort of simultaneous books um, that have been half written? No, I write one book at a time, but then what will happen is there's no sense of me waiting three or four weeks to hear back from an editor or a formatter. So once one is sent off to an editor's office, I'll start the next one. Mm-hmm. But I only write once one manuscript at a time. I don't yeah. try and juggle two. But once that one's done and it's in the editor's hands or the formatter's hands or whatever, then I'll start the next project. It's a waste of time to sit around and do nothing yeah. while you're waiting on an editor when I could have probably half of another book written. Stupid. It's not efficient. <laughs> and do you, does it tend to take a certain amount of time or, or could one take, you know, a couple of months and one take? three years it takes it all has a lot to do with how long um the outline is like i wrote a book in 2020 that came out in july it was called living the beach life and it's 23 chapters it was barely 100 pages so that one took me a lot less time to write than mm-hmm. you know, the one of we the people that was oh i don't know i guess that was 40 no, was that over 40 chapters or was it 30? I forget. But anyway, the point, I think it was 30 something. But those articles were not completely academic, but they weren't completely just straight up creative. So it was kind of a, a middle ground of my creativity with, you know, backing up academically more so. So it mm-hmm. took a lot longer to write each chapter. So, <laughs> excuse me, instead of just my creative thoughts on a subject or motherhood and just writing out my experiences, it's a lot quicker to do that as opposed to trying to make a case of an academic point. So that took me a little bit longer to write. So it just depends on how long the book is and the type of material, you know, if that makes any sense. Yeah. The poetry took me the longest. Really? actually. Oh yeah. That took me forever because as a woman of faith, it was very important to me that I think very, um, and be very conscientious and think very thoroughly and really not just do it cavalier of when I was looking at um, the Bible and scripture and, and making it be what I wanted, what I wanted to make sure I was communicating correctly with the world. And so I didn't take that project on very lightly. So I, I labored over it a lot, you know, and it took a long time to do that. So that probably is actually the one that took me the longest to write. Yeah. And not just over because it took me a decade, but because of everything going else in life. But when I was actually writing the poems, I would, literally only be able to get through a couple of stanzas and like four or five hours because I was studying the word and I was being very analytical and very thoughtful and, and then I would write you know what I mean mm-hmm. it was just, okay I, I'm a mom today so I'm going to tell you about my two-year-old or whatever you know I could it's very different type of writing yeah and do you think you know your creative process like when it is say more creative like you just said do you tend to 
is it all planned out thoroughly? Do you have like a really kind of thorough outline or do you just kind of roughly know what you want, where you want to go with it? I have to, I'm a planner by nature, so I have to have an outline to start. Mm-hmm. So at least, okay, this is my direction. I'm headed this way, so I know where to start. Now, that's not to say as I get into it that I can't change it, but I have to know where to start. I have to have a beginning point. And actually, that's happened a couple of times. Uh, I had a couple of books that were too long and I had to split them up into three. I'm like, really? Okay, fine. Mm-hmm. So I had to alter and then um, I... The second book in the religion series and a couple others, I've especially in the political series, um, I'd be writing one and I'd get a whole nother idea that was like, oh, this is a chapter, but this really could be expanded into a book. I'm like, really, brain? You're just added to my list. I'm not. <laughs> I don't need more work. Stop it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> let me first. So that happens sometimes. I'll be writing one thing and, and then I'll get a crazy brainstorm and it ends up creating something entirely <laughs> different that I need to add to the list. I'm like, okay, fine. Here we go. Matter of fact, that happened last night. I added two books to a series, so <laughs> yeah. great. Okay. I will. I will be very busy for a very long time. I'll have plenty to do. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. So you've written, you know, quite a few series, and I, I wondered if that was by by plan or like an accident. Like you say that it ended up just being longer than than anticipated. So you kind of went, well, yeah, this will work as a series. It was kind of by plan in the sense that I like those topics and mm-hmm. you know I have experiences with those. But it kind of, as I've been on this journey as an author, I didn't expect to have five series. It kind of just creatively came to me yeah. and then it, it worked out. So it was by plan, but not, if that makes any sense. Once the ideas came to me, I planned them out, but I wasn't expecting, I never set out when I was like a kid or a teen or said, Ooh, I'm going to grow up and have five series. I'm, no. <laughs> yeah. But I did out the series once the ideas came to me, if that makes any sense. Imagination is my favorite place No one can find me hiding from reality The boogeyman, I am the hero surviving Come let me take you on a journey to my secret place Come and share the adventure I promise you'll be safe Wish upon a star Escape to the moon Back limbs of heaven Shimmering through Come and meet my friends Easter Bunny and Tooth Fairy Come and share with me the magic In this mystery Step into my fairy tale You can trust in me Prepare to experience The fantasy In my secret place Yeah. So you've mentioned and you've touched upon sort of a lot of areas that I guess make up your identity. So, you know, author, mother, um, wife and now widow, uh, divorcee, um, female, um, you know, blind woman. Is there is there one area that you think 
that defines me the most? And yes, I'm a mother first and foremost. Or is it just all a part of, is it all equally relevant to each other that, that makes you as a person? I think it's all that makes us who we are because it's never just one thing because we're mm. multifaceted people. We're not, you know, just one yeah. dimension. But I do think that there have been some things that have defined me more than others. Like, obviously, because my disability, while I've worked really hard to get around it, it's you can't not be defined by it. Now, you can choose not to let it define you, but mm. it does shape who you are. And then, obviously, you know, uh, my faith, for, first and foremost, has definitely made me who I am and has allowed me to do what I do and, and still be here, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I guess then I to, to finish off, um, I, I, I forgot one. I'm sorry. And just this whole idea of what I've had to do in my life of overcoming and thriving and this, this thing of going through a lot of tribulation, it's made me strong. It's made me an overcomer, you know, to the best of yeah. my ability. And I've, you know, been pretty determined and tenacious and persistent. And so I take that as a big part of my identity of being someone that is going to do what they got to do and, and, and thrive, you know, no matter what yeah. strive anyway. Yeah, definitely. So just to finish off, I, I was wondering, you know, we've talked about, I guess, life of marginalized people, but, you know, people with disabilities as well. And, and yes, you know, it, it is fairly similar in, in the United Kingdom as it is um, in the US in that, yeah, the people with disability, even though it's getting better, it, it is tough and there there needs to be more in place. And there isn't a great deal of representation even still in the media, you know, and, you know, I one of my... I mean, stateside, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. And this isn't about politics, it's just an example of a pinpoint. It was not until 2008, the presidential campaign, when John McCain was running on the Republican ticket and his VP pick was Sarah Palin, like or don't like her. But the point of this conversation is it was not until 2008 on a national political platform stage in an election that in front of God and everybody, and I don't know how much I'll catch of it internationally, but everybody's eye is on it. Okay. No one was not paying attention when it comes to these kind of events. Sarah Palin for better or for worse, like, or don't like her. She has been the only potential politician that mentioned when she had the eye of the na all the eyes of the nation on her, we need to have a national discussion about the disabled. Mm -hmm. First time ever on national stage did that ever happen. If it did, it was before my lifetime and I didn't know about it. Yeah. But in my lifetime and since I've been aware of politics and keeping up with politics, did I ever hear that come out of a politician's mouth mm -hmm. on a national political stage where the whole entire nation was watching him? Yeah, obviously, we know John McCain didn't win and she never was VP, so it never went anywhere. And that was 13 years ago. It hasn't happened since. Mm -hmm. And that was 18 years after 1990 when the American Disability Act came into play. Yeah. And so that proves the point of, yeah, it's not an issue. It needs to be and it's not. And mm -hmm. It's sad that it took that long and it's never really happened since then. So. Mm -hmm.
guest on, uh, Ginny Butcher is her name, a disability rights activist, disabled woman, and she talked a great length about the way the pandemic was handled by the UK government, but also how, well, shockingly bad the support was for, for disabled people, you know, that were basically left you know, told, in, told that they need to the shield and isolate and, and not to leave the house. Uh, but left with very little in the way of support and, you know, health appointments being cancelled and and not prioritised. And yeah, you know, it, it's shocking that today, 2020, 2021, that this was still going on and that so many disabled, she was talking from the point of view of females, but disabled community in general um, were just again pushed, pushed aside and, and so many people, you know, died even during this time where they, they weren't getting the care that they needed so yeah I I, I think I, I mean I was the question I was about to ask is I guess more from a from a creative um point of view I was going to ask what your again advice I suppose to to someone with a disability um be it visually impaired or some other disability that would like to go into into the world of creativity of of writing of being an author but feeling like their disability will just be too much of a barrier, you know, never going to get published, never going to get looked at. I'm never, you know, it's just not going to happen. It's difficult enough for, for a, you know, non-disabled person. So what chance have I got? And what what advice would you give to someone letting that be a barrier and letting that stop them from, from kind of realizing that ambition? Well, it's applicable to your question specifically but it's also applicable in any aspect of life of the disabled you have to make a choice and I'm not saying it's easy you have to decide if that's something you want and then once you make the decision to do it you have to be willing to do whatever it takes to get it done whether that's writing or being a lawyer or being a teacher I don't care what you're trying to do as a disabled person Mm -hmm. whatever that your thing is that you're wanting to do if it's your goal or your dream then you have to make the choice to go after it no matter what it takes and once you make that choice then you have to be willing to do whatever that requires and be determined and strong-willed and persistent and tenacious and never give up and never stop and do what you have to, to maintain your mindset and your self-care and get the resources you need to accomplish that. That's just as true as it is as a writer, as it is a, you know, a whatever you're doing. Yeah. So that would be, you know, my advice is figure out what you want and then go for it and don't stop till you get it until you achieve it. No matter what yeah. comes away and be willing to do what it takes to, overcome whatever stands your way there's always a way just someone has to be willing to see find it and do it and overcome it and do what they've got to do i mean technology is a love-hate relationship but there's Mm -hmm. ways around technology i mean i don't do what i do without assistance i'm blowing things you know when i'm writing i'm writing in like 14 font or i mean magnifying the screen or whatever so you know yeah 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 and i think um you know, like you've mentioned that you, you self-publish. Uh, I, I wonder if that would almost be more daunting to someone and, and they may not even try. I mean, it is it, how difficult a process was that the first time that you did it? It was a lot of learning, not necessarily on the writing side, but more on the book production side, because that's what mm-hmm. you're doing. 
you're doing everything the publishing house would do. That's why it's called self-publishing. You're yeah. doing all the publishing yourself. And I, once I've done it several times, it's not really hard. It's just you kind of learn it. I've heard the expression, it's not hard, it's just new. So yeah. it's like learn anything new. It's going to be hard at first. But once you do it, you got it. So I was nervous at first, but then when I saw how easy it was and, you know, now that I've done it several times, I'm like, okay, it's just normal now. You know, it's part of what yeah. I do. So, and if you can't do part of the process, I, like, I don't do the cover design. I don't do the editing and I don't do the formatting. I hire everything else. Yeah. I literally just write the words and then I hire people to do the other stuff that I can't do. So. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much for your, for your time this evening. Well, this evening for me. <laughs> Um, is there anything that you would like to, to plug? Is there somewhere that people can go or a website they can go to find out about you and what you're doing? Uh, like I said, I'm an author and I'm a speaker. And so I have my website. It's called myheartfeltmeditations.com. You can find all of my things there. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. And you can get to all that through that. But um, all my books are on Amazon. And I have that website, my health, uh, myheartfeltmeditations.com. Brilliant. Well, thank you. And I look forward to, um, on what book would you recommend as a starting point? Because uh, I will be getting one myself. Right. If you want to know about me, the person, then I would start with my newest one, the newest one, the now I see one, because that is literally me walking you through my journey, the reader through my journey of what it's been like to live the journey of 38 triple D of having to deal with a disability your whole entire life, getting divorced at 26 and losing your husband at 38. So I had one, not two, all three of those by the age of 38, not mm. the youngest, but definitely pretty young in life to yeah, yeah. on your plate. So if you want to get to know me and my message and my journey, I would start there. But if you have interest in other subjects such as motherhood or parenting or politics or religion, then start with the other ones. But if you want to know me, the author and understand my story and my message then I would start with that one now I see it it was published on Amazon on June 22nd so it's the most recent and you know the most current so okay I will definitely check that out okay well thank you Michaela thank you for your time I appreciate it and I hope y'all have a great day and I look forward to hopefully staying connected yes definitely all right then take care speak soon Join me next time as we continue with part two of our special feature on the margins of the mainstream. And I'll be chatting to Jeffrey Weissman, the actor best known for his portrayal of George McFly in Back to the Future, part two and part three. For the anniversary in 2015, I loved uh, getting a message from Tom Wilson, who played Biff. And he had uh, put up a message on the anniversary about how he and Crispin we're on top of the world here. Two relatively unknowns were on, had the shoulders on their shoulders with this, this major motion picture. Um, and here was the anniversary of it. And he was rec remembering and then he continued. And then he mentioned how on part two and three that uh, he couldn't fathom what I was going through because I had an impossible task right. to, to do, to recreate first those scenes and then break new ground uh, with George in the future. And yet he said, but I stepped up to the plate and knocked it out of the park.
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner.